You are listening to the Hill Country Bible Church podcast. To learn more about Hill Country Bible Church, including our gathering times, visit us online at hcbc.com. Please enjoy today's message. I want to welcome each of you to Hill Country Bible Church and those joining us at our locations and our venues. We're so glad to be together, and we want to celebrate Leander Launch. So as we think about it, in 2020 March, we were locked out, didn't have a place to meet. We've been working on that for years. Finally, uh, COVID is subsiding a little bit. We were able to locate a place where we could meet again, and now we're reopening. And I want Lakeline and Steiner to let Leander know how excited we are. So at Lakeline and Steiner, would you make enough noise that Leander can hear how excited we are? Let's, let's make that noise. We're so excited about what God is doing and how he's transforming lives through our church. And uh, we we surveyed the congregation a a few months back and we found out about 30% of you are new since the pandemic. We're so excited to have you. And so one of the things that we thought we would do is do a little refresher uh, on our core values. And so we're starting a sermon series called One, The Values That Unite Us. And if you're uh, old-time Hill Country person, now not in age, obviously, but if you're just an old-time Hill Country person, it's good for us to be reminded of what's most important. So we're going to be looking at these together over the next five weeks, and I would encourage you, bring a notebook, take notes, um, get on your, your smart device, pull up your Bible app. In fact, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 6. We'll get there in a few minutes. And so you can follow along and keep up. So this isn't just an exercise in listening, but it's actually an exercise in learning and growing along the way. So we encourage you to do that. And so the, the big question that we start out with is what is a value? When we talk about values, values are basic beliefs that guide and motivate our behavior. Now, I hope as you read that, you came to understand that actually values are your boss because they tell you what to do. In other words, what you're doing today comes from a set of values, whether you realize it or not. And so, This week, for many families, it was before the crack of dawn, you pulled Junior out of bed, Uh, you sat Junior down at a breakfast uh, of nutritious, fresh-cut fruit and Greek yogurt, much different than what some of you experienced growing up, Kellogg's. (laughs) And then you brushed or combed Junior's hair And the next thing you did is what everybody has to do, and that is you strapped a 50-pound backpack on Junior's back, and you drove him to school or her to school. That's what you did. Now, why did you do that? My guess is you never really spent a lot of time thinking about what is the value behind this action? Because oftentimes, we just do what we've been doing. Like, my parents did this with me, and their parents did that with them before, and, and so, like, this is what we do. Everybody in the neighborhood's doing it. All kids this age are gonna be there. Like, this is what we do. We just do this. And that's the challenge when it comes to values. 
many times our values are not actually coming from a very thought out intentional place. And because values have so much power, what we do comes from what we value, it's important that we spend some time really looking at what is important. In fact, if you wanna know what's important to you, uh, I'm, I'm gonna give you three things to write down. Take these home and think about them because this will actually tell you what your values are. The first value, the first thing you can look at is your spending. Where do you put your money? Your, your valuables. And then the most valuable thing you have is your time. Look at your calendar, what you're doing this week, and that will tell you what is important to you. And then your prayers. When you pray to God, what are you asking him to do? What are you asking him not to do? What are you asking him to put into your life and to take out of your life? Those three things will give you a lot of insight by looking at what you do as to what you value. Now, at Hill Country Bible Church, we've been very intentional about laying out our values. And I want to start with our first value today. Our first value is we value responding to God's word. Now, what does that mean? responding to God's word. We believe that the Bible is God's word and therefore it is trustworthy as the complete and final authority for our beliefs and actions. In other words, what we do and what we think comes from responding to the word of God. We allow it to challenge and shape us through teaching groups in our daily devotion and through ongoing disciple making. Now, as I lay out this value, I just want to make sure everybody understands that the church is not an organization. The church is not some kind of power structure. It's not a group of people in a back room making decisions. The church actually is the people. It's you and me. We are the church. And so the power of this value is only as strong as each person's personal participation. So the question isn't just like, is this what Hill Country Bible Church values? But since you are Hill Country Bible Church, since I am Hill Country Bible Church, it matters what we value, what we're doing. So here's what I want you to do to kind of locate yourself in this conversation. I would encourage you right now to think of yourself on a scale of one to 10 when you think about responding to God's word. Would you say I'm a, like a one, which is kind of, no, nah, I don't really do that. Or a 10, like I'm all in. You follow my schedule around, you're gonna see me responding to God's word or you some kind of somewhere in the middle. What I would encourage you to do is get a number. Like, you don't have to tell anybody, don't shout it out loud, just get a number. What's the number that you initially think of when you think about this conversation? And we're gonna come back and talk about this as we move forward. The other thing I want you to do is this. There are many people that have constructed an idea of what the church is and they're constantly attacking that idea which doesn't actually reflect what the church is. And so students, some of you may be in a situation where you've got friends who are criticizing you for being part of the church or saying things about the church. Maybe it's a professor that's saying things about the church and they mischaracterize it and then 
they build a reason not to follow. So essentially what I would encourage you to do is take some notes because we're going to be talking about some basic stuff of what the church that Jesus founded was actually all about. And you'll have those to go back to. So what we're going to do is we're going to break this down. We're going to be looking at some passages along the way, and then we're going to get to Luke 6. So as we break this down, we'll start with the first statement. The Bible is God's word. We believe that God spoke The God of the universe spoke the Bible through the authors, and it's actually the Word of God for all generations speaking to all people. Now, some of you may not come from a background where you believe that. Some of you may not be following Jesus, and and you're just kicking the tires, and if that's true, we're so glad you're here. We would love to answer all, all your questions, and what I would love more than anything else, if you'll all just clear your calendar for the day. And the week, as we could walk through this together, and I could spend a whole bunch of time going through all the proofs of the Word of God, why the Bible is reliable, why it stood the test of time, the amazing nature of the Bible, the main themes. We could spend a lot of time doing that. I'm not going to do that today. I'm just going to give you one reason why the Bible is the Word of God. Now, again, there's thousands, but I'm going to give you one, and that is because Jesus said it was. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, law and prophets in Jesus' day meant the whole Old Testament. He said, I didn't come to abolish it. I have come not to abolish it, but to fulfill them. So anybody who says, well, I like Jesus, but I don't like the Bible. Or I like Jesus, but there are parts of the Bible that I'm getting rid of that I don't follow, then you are not liking Jesus because Jesus liked it all, okay? That was Jesus' deal. He went on to double down on that. He says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In other words, Jesus said the actual written word on the page would be accomplished. Like heaven and earth are going to disappear God's word is going to stand. It will be accomplished. Now, I'd love to give you more on this and give you more information, but what I'm going to do is send you to a website that I think is really significant for those of you who are skeptics about the Bible or just have a lot of questions. And here's the website. It's josh.org, and you need to get the whole thing. So I would encourage you to take a picture of this or at least write it down because um, it's hard to find the resources. But if you go to the resources, apologetics, and then answering skeptics, the first thing is this long section on the Bible. And if you don't know the proofs of the reason why the Bible is reliable, then that is a very unfortunate level of ignorance that's like, like you need to understand this. So, so go to that, spend some time on that this week. So God has chosen to speak his word, to write it down so that all generations could have access to it. We wouldn't have one group in one place that makes up something and another group in another place. It's something that unifies us, that brings us together around the word of God. 
Okay, so what's the implication of that? The implication is because the Bible is God's word, therefore it is trustworthy as the complete and final authority for our beliefs and actions. So when it comes to what we believe, when it comes to what we do, we take our cues from the Bible because it's trustworthy, we can trust it, and there's no other authority, simply not a human authority, that we would look to to say, they got it right, God got it wrong. They got it right, God got it wrong. So this is what guides us in our lives, the very word of God itself. Here's what Paul said. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he said, all scripture is God-breathed. Now, That is an important statement. When you communicate, you speak by breath being expelled through your vocal cords in such a way that the words come out. When God said, let there be light, it was the breath of God that spoke everything into existence. When God created Adam, He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God breathed into him. That's where life came from. The word of God is God speaking into or breathing his truth into the authors of Scripture. So 40 different authors over 1,500 years recorded the word of God in a book that's consistent and logical and meaningful all the way through. So why would God communicate to us what he wants us to know? He says because it's useful, it works, it's reliable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Righteousness means living rightly. Living the way God has designed our bodies to live, our relationships to live, the environment to live, how God's designed marriage to be, how God's designed friendships to be, how God's designed work to be, how God's designed parenting to be, like all of those things, God put them together. And what the Bible does is it keeps us on the path. It teaches us. When we get off, it rebukes us. It gets us back on by correcting and training in righteousness. Why? Because God has a purpose for your life so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He doesn't say for every good thought. You say, why do you point that out, Tim? Because there are lots and lots of people who pride themselves on knowing Bible information, but it never makes its way down to life application. Many people pride themselves on, I've learned a lot of theology, I know a lot of stuff. But when it comes to the way they treat people, the way they live, the way they order their life, it's actually not there. And so what Paul is telling us here is that God's word actually equips us to live the activities of our life in powerful ways. But keep in mind there are many other voices and many other paths in our culture that are vying for your attention and calling you to a different way of life than what the Bible calls you to. This week I ran across a couple books that were written by people who tried to follow a path that was outlined for them. The first one is 37-year-old Chicago-based performance artist and yoga teacher, Robin Okrent, who had a silly idea. She decided that she was going to take everything Okra said and did, Okra, Oprah, sorry, 
Everything Oprah said, I got Okrant and Oprah, so that's the name, sorry. Uh, Everything she said, she said you were supposed to do. She was going to, in one year, obey every single thing. She took 57 of Oprah's challenges and a whole bunch of her ongoing daily activities. And and then she wrote a book called Living Oprah, and her tell-all, she makes do without paper towels, she gives herself a makeover. She redefines sex, her sex life. She adopts a kitten. By the end of the year, she'd spent over $5,000 and committed to 57 ongoing challenges as well as countless one-time tasks. And then she wrote it all down in a book to sell a book. Forbes magazine interviewed her and they asked her the question, like, how was it? And her response is, it was draining. I felt terrible about myself. And the worst thing is it had a negative impact on my friendships because I was spending so much time trying to make myself the perfect person according to the standards that were given by Oprah that I didn't have time for my friends. And she said the worst victim of it was her husband because she tried to do marriage Oprah's way. So every day they were taking tests to evaluate everything from their sex life to their communication style to how they fought. All through that grid, she said her husband was deeply depressed. (laughs) When asked the question, Will you continue taking advice from the media? Here's what she said. She said, guidance is good, but there's an addiction in this country. We, if we didn't clamor for articles that promised to tighten your butt in two weeks and flatten your abs in four, it wouldn't be on the stands or the internet all the time. It, it's a cycle we're complicit in, but it's dangerous. And then she muses and she says this. She says, I wonder, do any of us even know what we would find beautiful if we weren't told what is beautiful. Could we step back? I don't know if we could. Think about that. Like, the world defines so much of our ideas of what it means to be human, what it means to be, be successful, what it means to be happy, even what it means to be beautiful. Let me tell you, folks, the Word of God has a definition for beauty. And it's not the one in the culture. And it doesn't give people body image issues. It defines what beauty is in a way that everybody can experience it and live in it and feel good about it. But you know what? That's not the value that we hold. How much of our life is diminished because we do things that don't come from the Word of God. So, A.J. Jacobs about the same time, did a different experiment. And he wrote a book called The Year of Living Biblically. And he spent 12 months trying to do everything in the Old Testament, like take all the rules of the Old Testament and apply it. Here's what he wrote in the book. He said it was amazing, enlightening and life-changing year. It was a spiritual journey that moved from irreverence to reverence. You see, I grew up in a totally secular home, no religion at all. I'm officially Jewish, but I'm Jewish in the way that Olive Garden is Italian. (laughs) Which is to say, not very. He says, but in recent years, I decided I needed to see what I was missing. Was I neglecting something crucial to being human, like someone who goes through life without ever hearing Beethoven or falling in love? 
I dived into the Bible headfirst, and lo, it was awesome. I was surprised by how relevant much of the Bible's ancient wisdom was to my 21st century life. I was surprised by how baffled I was by other passages. I was surprised by how a lifelong agnostic like me could find solace in prayer. I was surprised by how relevant the Bible or how the Bible revealed my flaws and challenged me to be a better person. Now here are two agnostics, non-believers, following two paths, and here's a guy who just picks up the Old Testament, which is the Word of God, and just says, well, I'm going to do that and see what happens. And he experiences a transformation in his life without even understanding the person behind the book. There are all kinds of paths in life, And there are all kinds of people prescribing those paths. Which path are you on? If we are following the Bible together and applying it, living in it, we're going to be on the path that God laid out for us. Which brings us to the next part of our definition here, and that is in responding to God's word, we allow it to challenge and shape us. We allow it to actually call us out, challenge us, and then shape us. And now we come to Luke chapter 6, and we're starting in verse 46. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. So you get your Bibles and go there. We're going to look at this passage. This is such a profound passage. Now, Jesus has just finished a sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. It has a lot of similarities to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, but a different location. And he changes some things up to speak to a slightly different audience. One of the reasons why I like this is that means I can repeat some of my sermons from time to time. Right? Helps out a little bit. He comes to the end of it and he says these words, words that haunt me. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Uh, Ouch. I memorized this verse 30 years ago, and at least once a week, I hear the Holy Spirit saying, Tim, why do you call Jesus Lord, Lord? And in this particular situation, you are not doing what he says. And if you get nothing else out of this message... Just let that statement from Jesus resonate through your week. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Now, what does Lord, Lord mean? That's not a term we typically use. Well, in in Jesus' day, they recognized rabbis and teachers who had spiritual authority over them. Thus, the word Lord implies somebody who knows more and is superior to me spiritually. In addition to that, the phrase, Lord, Lord, when used twice together, was an emphatic emotion. It's the same kind of statement that you might feel in a worship service when you're praising Jesus and you say, Lord, Lord. Now, why would they be emotional over Jesus' spiritual leadership? Because Jesus walks into town and he does supernatural transformational things. As four guys take a friend up to the roof, clear away the rooftop and lower their friend down in front of Jesus who's surrounded by so many people in the house that they can't get in. And the reason why they do that is because their friend is broken, he's crippled, he can't walk. And Jesus takes him by the hand and says, your sins are forgiven, stand up and walk. 
Jesus not only forgives the guy's sins, but he also gives him his physical strength back. And they stood there in amazement and went, who can do that? The only person can do that has to be somebody that comes from God. Lord, Lord. And then Jesus taught. And when Jesus taught, they heard phrases like, blessed are the poor. Oh, you mean God cares for the poor and not just the rich? And they were amazed by what Jesus was teaching. And so many of them were following him around and they would say, out of the emotion of seeing God incarnate, Lord, Lord. But that doesn't mean that they actually followed and obeyed his teaching. And so Jesus challenges them by giving two analogies. Jesus loved to use analogy to make things really plain. And he starts off talking about two builders. And here's what he says in verse 47. He said, Jesus says, I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. So person number one, positive example, he comes to Jesus for a personal relationship. He actually listens to Jesus for the purpose of doing what Jesus says, puts them into practice. Here's what he's like. Jesus said, he is like a man building a house. Now, frequently, Jesus would talk about house building as a metaphor for building your life. So it's like a man building his house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck the house but could not shake it because it was well built. So what Jesus is saying is, if you look at this person who comes, who hears and obeys, that's a person who does the hard work of laying the foundation of his life. He says, this guy dug, but he didn't just dig, he dug down deep. In fact, he kept digging until he got to bedrock, and there he put the foundation of his life on bedrock. In other words, the stability that you have in your relationship with Jesus is directly related to how you persist in obeying what he tells you to do. Some people say, well, I I prayed a prayer. Isn't that going to be the charm over my life? No, inviting Jesus to come into your life is just the beginning. Jesus has got a whole plan for your life. So when the storms come, this guy is anchored to Jesus because he did what Jesus tells him to do. In contrast to that, Jesus gives a negative example. He says in verse 49, but the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice, notice this isn't someone that's coming to Jesus. This isn't someone that's doing what Jesus said. He's just listening. He's just listening. Puts him into practice. It's like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. In the contrast between the two, the things that are in common are they're both building their lives and they both encounter hardship. Hardship is a part of life. Every one of us in life will go through hardship. That's part of life. 
Sometimes it's in your marriage. Sometimes it's with your kids. Sometimes it's with your employer or friends. Sometimes it's financial. Sometimes it's health-wise. Sometimes it's actually deeply set in the emotional makeup of who you are in the areas of fear and anxiety and depression. But every single one of us will go through difficulty in life. That is a guarantee. And anybody that thinks that's not true, you're just not paying attention to the reality of the world. We all go through hardship. The difference between the two is that one was living a lifestyle in obedience to God. So when the marriage that is founded on obeying what Jesus said about how husbands and wives are supposed to love each other, how you build the schedule of your time, how you prioritize what's important to you, when the storms come to the marriage, there's strength there. When you don't do that, there's no strength there. Now, true or false question? If you drove through a neighborhood and these houses were side by side, would you be able to tell the difference? You know why you wouldn't? Because the foundation is hidden. The most important part of your life, the foundation, that's something that's not easy to see. And that's why it's so difficult in our culture to simply measure yourself against other people. Because when we measure ourselves against other people, we tend to say, well, I'm doing a little bit better than that person. And so if I'm doing a little bit better than that person, that must mean I'm okay. Well, how do you know that the flood's not going to come through and just wipe them out tomorrow? You can't tell. Because the foundation is this commitment to be obedient to the word of God. Now, when I say that, That's why we use these words. This is not easy. So we allow it to challenge. Like, there's so much that we just fall into culturally that we just do because it's something that happened in the past and everybody does it. We just go along with it. It challenges us, but it also must shape us. It must begin to make a difference in our lives. Now, challenge though it's not easy, is incredibly valuable. And if you won't let the Bible challenge you, you have to evaluate your thoughts about God. In fact, Pastor Tim Keller said it this way. He says, if you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God, the author of the Bible? He says, in any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you. I mean, if if you basically take the approach that God I'm going to take all the parts out of the Bible that fit what I want. I'm going to leave the rest of them out. Essentially, what you're saying to God is, listen, God, guess who's your boss? Guess who's the center of the universe? Guess who's the source of truth? So actually acknowledging that God knows what he's talking about, then we allow it to challenge and we allow it to shape us. One more comment on this Luke passage. Notice that the first person, the successful life builder, he did three things. Comes to Jesus, hears Jesus speak, and then puts them into practice. In the Greek, all three of those verbs are continuous in nature. In other words, he comes and keeps coming to Jesus. He hears and keeps listening to Jesus. 
he, he obeys, he does, and he keeps doing. In other words, this isn't a one-time thing. This is a way of life, which brings us to the last part of our definition of responding to God's Word. We allow it to challenge and shape us through teaching groups in our daily devotion and through ongoing disciple-making. Some of you are thinking, are you saying what I think you're saying? Some of you are saying, I have no idea what you're saying. Well, let me bring you both back together, right? Okay. Here's what we're saying. What we're saying is, if you run your schedule in such a way where these four priorities do not take place in your life every week, then you have not prioritized the Word of God and obedience to Jesus as your top priority. Now, I'm going to give you some reasons for that as you just wrestle with that. We're saying weekly, sitting under the teaching of Jesus, you make a commitment to be in worship every week. We're saying groups. You make a commitment to join a group of people that are going to challenge you in the way you live your life, and you're going to participate in that group on an ongoing basis. That means every day you're going to get up and you're going to open the Word of God and you're going to spend some time reading the Bible and praying. In addition to that, we challenge you to be in a disciple-making relationship. That's a relationship where a few people get together and we grow in our faith together. These things here, taking priority in your schedule over everything else, would actually communicate that you're going to obey Jesus. Now, let me give you some background because I know you're going to need it. Here's the first thing you need to know. These four things are the biblical priorities of the church that Jesus founded and the biblical practice of the early church. So you're saying, like, Hill Country Bible Church didn't make this up? No, keep in mind what we're doing is we're responding to God's Word. That's what the Word of God says. You say, where does it say that? I'm so glad you ask. (laughs) Like, write this down. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 lays out three of these. That's what the church did as soon as the Holy Spirit came. This became the lifestyle of the followers of Jesus. The second passage is Matthew 28, 19 and 20, where Jesus gave the command to make disciples. So this is what the New Testament church did because this is what the Bible says we have to do. We're called to do that. Some of you go, well, that sounds legalistic. Ha, I'm glad you brought that up because you don't understand what legalism is. Legalism is not about obedience. Legalism is about trying to earn something. You're not doing any of these practices or obeying Jesus to get any credit. You're doing these things because they change your life. They give you the insight in how to live how to live a good, successful life according to God's plan for you. So that's what the Bible is saying. It's not legalistic any more than if you get to the end of the month and you don't get a paycheck and you say to your boss, where's my paycheck? And he says, why are you so all legalistic about that paycheck every month? Like, I just don't want to be a legalist. You'd say, I do want you to be a legalist about this one, right? And that's not what it's about, okay? We get this. It's about obedience. Here's the second reason. The second thing I want you to know is if you do not immerse yourself in God's Word, you will be swayed by other voices. 
If you don't spend enough time every week in the Word of God and interacting with other believers about what's important, you will get distracted. Now, I could give you a lot of data to prove that. Let me just give you one example where what parents say they're passing on to their kids is not what their kids are getting. This was Harvard. Massive study of 10,000 families serving the parents and the kids over what was most important. They had three things that they were measuring. The first one was achievement, success. The second one was happiness. And the third one was caring about other people and treating people well. What was interesting in the survey is the kids all picked happiness and achievement as the most important, and the parents rated treating people well as very important, if not the most important, but what the kids heard from the parents is very different. Here's what they say, while 96% of parents say they want to raise ethical, caring children and cite the development of moral character as very important, if not essential, 80% of the youth surveyed reported that their parents are, quote, more concerned about achievement or happiness than caring for others. The kids were three times more likely to agree with this statement. My parents are prouder if I get good grades in my class than if I am a caring member in class and in school. Why do kids get that message? Well, they got this crazy teacher portal web thing that tells you whether your kids have turned in their assignments or whether they haven't turned in their, your assignments. So every day you're on your kid like, get going, you've gotta succeed in school, there's all these requirements. In other words, so much of what we're doing on a daily basis. So many hours working in the system of achievement. You've gotta get there, kids, because you won't have a happy life unless you can get there. Those are the messages that get repeated over and over again, and the ones like, who are you becoming, which are the things that come right out of the Bible. So if you spent time in the Bible on a regular basis, what would be coming out of your mouth? Get your homework done, achieve, make sure you dot your I's, cross your T, you gotta get all this stuff, or would you be hearing what the Word of God has to say in your home? That's why it's so important to understand if you don't prioritize time in your schedule for the Word of God and the people of God, you will drift from obedience to the values of God. One more, and that is, Studying and applying God's word must be the top priority in my schedule. Like if I don't put this into my schedule as the top priority, I mean, let me just be really, really frank. I don't want to mince mince words here because this is life and death for us. I mean, this is is our life. This is the one we're going to stand before Jesus and, and offer to him. This is eternity. This is your life. It ought to be more precious to each of us than what we often make it. This is your life. And so... If you're not willing to sit down with the calendar this week and ask the question, how do I take these four practices and schedule them in first and then work the rest of it around those? Then what's going to happen is you will think, I'm doing pretty good 
but you will easily drift away. In 1628, the people of Sweden stood at the Stockholm Harbor and watched the launching of the greatest warship that had been built to that moment. They built the Vasa warship, sorry, they built the, they built the Vasa warship uh, with its 68 guns uh, as a superb um, ship that would actually lead their navy into battle against the Poles, and the king was convinced that this ship was the best one ever made, and the people were cheering their, 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 their country on to victory as it was sailing away, and as it sailed out, it got less than a, a mile into the harbor, and there it pitched a little bit and turned on its side and sank to the bottom of the ocean. Fifty-three people died, and everybody was devastated. So, in 1961, 333 years later, they, they raised the ship up. In fact, you can go there and see it. It's one of the biggest attractions in Sweden, is to go see this ship. And as they began to try to figure out what the deal was, they found out that there was an imbalance between the port and the starboard side of the ship. They found four rulers in the ship itself, and they discovered that two of those rulers were the Swedish foot measurement, which was 12 inches, and two of those rulers were the Amsterdam foot, which were, was 11 inches. And you've got builders on each side of the ship building with a different measurement scale. Guess what happened to the ship? It sank, which we would expect, right? And yet, how many of us are trying to take the measurement standard of the values of the world and some of the word of God and take that which is eternal and perfect and combine it with what's cultural and human wisdom and we try to put those things together and build our life and we wonder why we're sinking when God opens his arms and says, I gave you my word, I've given you the church, hey, what would happen if each of us together made responding to God's word a priority for all of us? We would begin to experience God's life change in us. We would have marriages that look different. We would have families and children that look different. The way we live our lives, run our businesses, the way we interact in the world would be this incredible aroma of life to the world around us. So many people today are worried about the culture. And the greatest tool to transform the culture is each of us together following Jesus with the way we live our lives. My challenge to you and to me is this week, take your calendar, erase everything that's on it, Put those four priorities in place. Do not merely listen to the word. Do what it says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Do not do what I say. This is what it looks like to be obedient to Jesus. Put those things in there, and you're going to see over the next month, two months, six months, year, things begin to grow and be birthed in you and in us together that will literally change us and the eternity for the place which we live. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, what an awesome gift you've given us. You've given us your word. You wrote it down. Given us Jesus, your living word, to show us and teach us. 
Father, forgive us for filling our lives with so many other things. May we have the courage to be challenged and shaped by your call to step into spaces that maybe in the past we weren't brave enough to do. And by your spirit, change us so that we might reflect the joy and the glory of what you designed us to be. And we do it together. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To hear other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at hcbc.com. And again, thanks for listening to the Hill Country Bible Church Podcast.